0: Ryan, welcome to the G two G Automation Forum. Just a quick backdrop of why we are here and what's the agenda for this forum. So when we kicked off the initial G two G Forum a couple of months ago, we had a really great conversation about automation strategy and how should mortgage lenders embrace automation. One of the key aspects of that that came out of that meeting, uh, when Matt Kendall, CEO of RS Mac Mortgage, presented it, is you know. How did they go about building a sustainable process for automation, right? Which is looking at the entirety of automation, not just from an RPA perspective, but how do they really tie that back to the borrower's journey and how to approach automation more methodically? So we thought that, you know, that had a lot of great questions and we thought it warranted a dedicated breakout session for just that portion alone. Um, So then we talked to Ryan Davis from harvest bank ryan will introduce himself in the in the coming slides um you know he, he's been leading the intelligent automation efforts and the process improvement efforts so we'll you know we'll talk about how harvest approached this holistically and also dive down into details um, of how to make that happen with that said uh ryan over to
1: you, you can give a introduction, and then we can get started Hello, Ryan Davis uh, with Arvest Bank. I appreciate the chance to speak with you all today. Um, I've been with the company since beginning of 2017, uh, brought over to create a process improvement team. So if you're familiar with Lean and, and Six Sigma, that's that's my background. I'm a Six Sigma black belt. First, uh, took that up back in 2001 when I worked for a bank, you might recall, called Bank One, uh, they ended up being acquired by Chase uh, towards the end of my time there. Uh, so I was with Bank One and Chase for about six years, uh, worked for BOK Financial for 12 and then been here for almost, I guess, almost seven years. And most of that time has been doing process improvement, process redesign type work, uh, spend a little bit of time in loan operations and risk management as well, but a real passion is process improvement. And automation came a bit later in, in that journey. I was at a process improvement and banking conference beginning of 2019, and I figured to be a lot of people like myself, process improvement of banks, and there were, those were there too. But really, most everyone was talking about this thing called RPA, which I didn't really know much about, um, but th- they were going on and on about how it was actually working for them. Sometimes some technology tools, you don't get what you expect from them. Unfortunately, but they were really kind of promoting the fact that you can achieve great gains for your process efficiency with RPA. I came back from that with an epiphany that we need to look into that as well. Uh, convinced the leadership team at the bank to to let me build a program, and kind of been off to the races since that. Um, it formally started in October of 2019, and I'll kind of get into a little more detail on the timeline later. But that's how I got started on this journey. Uh, I'm based out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, so right in the middle, right in the middle of the U.S. All right, let's talk about why we would even add an automation program. Um, I view it as just another tool in our toolbox, literally, and and we have different levers that we can pull to try and achieve uh, process efficiency. Uh, And if you look at that, number one is really what I started with when I got here. Then we added on, um, green belt training and lean principles. And I'll explain that in case you're not familiar with what the, what those terms are. I don't want to assume everyone has, has that background. Um, lean is, I would say, uh, it's a methodology for waste reduction cycle time enhancement, typically focused on that. It's more a facilitation and workshop based. So we'll do something like a value stream mapping event uh, where we bring a team together and and walk through their process to identify the pain points. Six Sigma tends to be a little more mathematical, where it's focused on really trying to gather some data around a process and uh, get to the root cause of what the issues are. Um, So that's most of what my background has been, those first three. Um, Greenbelt is training others within Lean and Six Sigma to help themselves uh, to fix their own processes. Four and five are are the the new tools in our toolbox. Intelligent automation, that's automations that our team builds directly in our center of excellence uh, for teams around the bank. Citizen development is analogous to number two. However, it's automation focused where we're teaching people how to build some of their own automations. So we use all of those levers to try and obtain process efficiency. All right, I want to go to the next slide. So why combine the two? And the reason why I bring this up, uh, I've talked to a lot of counterparts at other companies in banking, financial services space and other industries. And very often uh, I'll see scenarios where automation is, primarily a technology initiative and I'm not saying that's the wrong business model but for us we took a little bit of a different approach where it's really a combination of both. There's a technology element to it but there's a heavy process component as well. Uh, The reason being is we want to ensure that whatever processes we are automating actually need to be automated and uh, very early on uh, 2019 when we were thinking about standing up this program I uh, went to a couple conferences just to get up to speed and I heard a couple speakers basically say something along the lines of that first bullet, never automate a bad process, redesign it first. And all of our automation opportunity advisors, that's our word for uh, essentially a business analyst who's focused on automation. The people on our team who identify automation opportunities, assess whether we want to build those or not based off various factors, and then assuming we're going to move forward with it, they determine uh, what the requirements are to build that out, map out the process. There you're very often tweaking the process to make it a little more efficient before you automate it. So it's very rare that we automate a process completely as is. Uh, Maybe there are some steps in that process that upon further review, we don't really need to do, for example. So we'll cut those out.
0: Uh, So er go ahead. Now, I was gonna say I think it's um I think it's a very important point because most often than not, organizations typically go around with a hammer looking for a nail, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, we have a license for an RPA, you know, we have this OCR tool, you know, let's try and automate now with what we have, right? Or um, most often than not, automation is just looked at as customer experience angle of it, which is is important, but a customer experience doesn't just stop at your point of sale, right? And it's pervasive through middle and back offices. And that's where I think some of what you mentioned here, you know, um, lean value stream mapping, which literally goes across the life cycle to identify some of these automation opportunities, right? So I think, you know, typically lenders and most organizations go for low hanging fruits, which is not a bad thing. But I think you know if you have an opportunity to optimize those, I think those would be great as well. So you make a really good point here. Um yes. Oh, at that.
1: Yeah. And, and absolutely. If I look at all the different types of projects we do each year, inevitably my favorite ones that I like to talk about are the we convince somebody to just stop doing something. Um and I'm sure Arvest isn't unique in in that regard, where a lot of companies just have processes that they've inherited over the years and uh, it's funny, you ask people, well, why do you do this step of the process? And the answer is typically something along as, well, I don't know. Or we've just done that in the seven years I've been here or however long, or this is what so-and-so taught me to do and she didn't know why she did it. So if you really kind of challenge them, very often you can just get people to stop doing needless work. But but the, that's pretty easy to implement. You just have to convince them to stop it. Um. So you mentioned value stream mapping a moment ago in Ryan, and we do those quite a bit as well, uh, exactly Ron's comment there, the way you've always done it's exactly right. Um, value stream mapping events, and actually, why don't we go to the next slide? We'll go into that. I think I have a slide kind of more focused on that, if you don't mind. Okay, uh, and this is a picture from one of our actual events, just for fun, to kind of give you the, the, the a sense of how this works. So interesting thing in about value stream mapping, it in, in my mind considering where we are October 2023 um, a couple years passed a pretty significant pandemic which changed the way we work there are so many things that you really can do remotely these days uh prior to covid I drove two hours east to our home office in bentonville Arkansas almost every week spent a couple days there I go maybe once a month now uh, the, a lot of you know we've all learned some meetings just don't really need to be in person so don't do it if you don't have to um, but in our experience, events like this really are better in person. Uh, we're typically pulling people together for three or four days to really take a deep dive into a process and understand what that looks like. So and Ryan, you used the term customer journey earlier. In my view, let's say you're talking about mortgage origination. Um, I don't want to have just another writer in the room and a loan processor and a closer. Yes, you need those people as well, but you also need loan officers in there who can speak to uh, the application process and the frustrations that customers have. Um, You might need a title agent in there to understand that piece of it as well, because that's kind of the back end of the origination process. So you really need to have an end-to-end view with representation from each function in that process. And what we're doing there is, as you can see from the different colored post-it notes there, is we're mapping out all of the steps in that process with input from the entire team. And then once you have that, then you use the different colors to represent things such as um, how long, what's the cycle time for this step and how long should it take, right? Where are pain points, something that customers complain about, or maybe the employees complain about? Is there something that looks like if if you want to challenge, whether you need to do that step, you might start that one. and and to kind of revisit whether it's a wasteful step in the process. Uh, You might tag something that, this might be an automation candidate, right? So we're trying to classify the steps as we go. Um, But the intent is, this is your current state. Based off those issues you identified there, what would an ideal future state look like? And trying to understand what's the difference, the delta between current state and future state and map that out with a team. And you typically walk out with a list of action items or potential projects. But again, uh, you know, you can use some online facilitation tools like a Miro board to do a process map, but it's just not you don't get the same effect and atmosphere as having people in the room. So that's something that and, and I will we'll have people ask, can we do it by zoo? And and my answer is always no. I said, if you want the event and, you're, and it's important enough to you, we we you can pick the location and we'll yeah. come to you but we're going to do it in person.
0: So yeah, interesting you say that because a couple of years ago, when we launched Genius Works, which is an end-to-end suite of a solution of a fulfillment solution, this is the exact thing we did. You know, we mm-hmm. pulled people all over the country, went to our Charlotte office, and did that. And and I, I don't think a mirror board or any other uh, digital solution can eliminate that. The one question that I had of you is, you know, in this is. This is this is a process that is agnostic to the channel. And what I mean by that is how you expose mm-hmm. that experience across multiple channels could be different. And mm-hmm. this comes from my own personal anecdotal experience, of course. You know, a few years ago, I applied for a mortgage with a lender. You know, we obviously applied for it on the portal and submitted every single document that was asked of me. Right. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, two days later, I get a massive needs list. And half of the stuff that I've already submitted for, right? And then there's a the name of the processor sure. in the email. So I call the processor and the processor, oh, just ignore that email. I'll work with you directly. So there is a classic, <laughs> what I call it, you know, channel yeah. dissonance between how the online perceives and how you communicate to a borrower vis-a-vis mm-hmm. what's actually going on in the back end. So which is why I think value stream mapping, when done channel agnostic, helps you project the customer experience to the right channel, right? If it's analog and if it's digital and if it's online call center, so I think mm-hmm. that really is 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 at the core of driving that holistic
1: borrower experience in my mind. <laughs> mm-hmm. That was a great example. And then you, as a you know a potential borrower at that point, we're thinking, what a clunky process! You're sending me a, a pointless email for a you already have, and I have to yeah. call in and tell you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Those are the kind of things you would hope to uncover in an event such as this. So we do. Um, oh, I say we probably do about one of these a month. There's one uh, next week we're doing around account opening in our wealth management business for, for trust accounts. So we do these with some regularity, again, they're, they're typically in person.
0: Awesome.
1: Well, let's talk a bit about the team and the reason why I thought this might be helpful to include in here, um, there might be some uh, people in the audience, maybe they're pretty far on their automation journey, but it for a few years, maybe some just getting started Uh, Maybe some haven't gotten down this path at all, might just be in the learning stage. This is how we set up the organization, just as an example of how one company tackled this. Um, We have, uh, if you look at there's two groupings there, there's um, the director of process improvement side, that's me, and I roll up through the finance organization, ultimately through the the CFO, and uh, we have uh, three different buckets of work, I would say. The the one on the left, process improvement, that's what I call our traditional process improvement team. In other words, um, employees who have Lean Six Sigma training and they focus on items such as doing value stream mapping events, root cause analysis, uh, process mapping, and so forth. Automation opportunity, that's the team I mentioned earlier that does the assessment and due diligence for processes that we know we want to automate. We just need to figure out what that looks like to get the requirements ready for development. And then it actually, after that, if you look at it from a lifecycle standpoint, typically starts with PI or the automation opportunity team. Then it goes over to the automation engineering group on the right. That is, as, as, you, as you would think, it's traditional uh, software development type talents in that group. And they roll up through our technology organization and they actually build build the boss, if you will, in uipath which is the platform we use and then it comes back over to my testing and operations team to do some quality assessments of the code for and then coordinate user acceptance testing with their business partners and deploy it at ongoing operations or care and feeding the bot as i like to say so that's how we're structured um, but it's even though you have one side rolling up through technology and one through finance we're pretty tightly aligned um, i i've already had two meetings today with the director of automation technology. So we're pretty tightly aligned with that team. Uh, For the people who work in office, we share an office in Benville, Arkansas. That's where we have all of our team meetings together um, and we share common goals. So it's pretty tight alignment between these groups because it's a very synergistic relationship.
0: Right. And Ryan, I think you mentioned something important in the beginning of the slide Mm -hmm. is, you wonder where different lenders are in their automation journey, right? Mm-hmm. Their automation teams. So I think this might be a good time to just take a pause and then run a poll to see where are the different lenders in their automation journey. So just wondering, Robin, if you can run that poll, see what that looks like. Okay, it
2: is up and running. one more minute here. Okay, I think we're just about there. Hold on. Looks like uh, the winner being, they've automated some process, but they could do more.
0: Yeah, so the good thing is we don't have anybody who has you know, absolutely no experience with automation. I think everybody is in some parts of the journey, um, but the majority of the lenders, at least halfway there, right? I mean, they've started it, but they could they feel that they could automate more. Great, that, that's a great insight. If you wanna to move to the next slide, Robin,
1: I don't expect you to necessarily read all of that fine print there but I just wanted to put this out there as an example of all the different roles that are involved in an automation. And this was noteworthy for me because um when we were a traditional process improvement team several years ago even though let's say you might be doing um you know holding a value stream mapping event or just working on a project that someone brought to you to help with a problem, you really had one person who was um, quarterbacking the project, if you will, and kind of owned it from end to end. I found that's not necessarily the case with automations. Um, No one person can execute that project on their own because someone's doing the assessment and requirements gathering up front. Someone different is doing the software development. Someone else tests it. Someone deploys it. Someone monitors it ongoing, and in the very beginning, you might have had someone different that actually spotted the opportunity. So we have went, um, we we were to great lengths to try and really define what those roles are. So what are the roles within the team, and then who does what within the team? If you're you might in case you're not familiar with a Racy matrix, this is a pretty handy tool um, to define who does what in those different roles. So it stands for responsible, accountable, consulted, and informed. And we break it up into different phases. Uh, so new would be something that is just an idea, haven't really looked into it yet, kind of working through known and plans where you're doing your requirements gathering and defining what needs to be done all the way to active and enclosed. And I will qualify this, we moved from a tool called ADO, Azure DevOps for our project tracking to JIRA over the last few months. So we need to update some of the terminology here. But I just want to put this out there as an example of if, I mean, I'm an advocate of if you're building an automation program and you're trying to move it from just getting started to mature, at some point, I think you'll probably have to tackle what are the roles within your automation team? What does each role do? Who's responsible for each task? Who needs to just be informed, and so forth? So keep that in mind.
0: Yeah, and it's a great tool to ensure that stakeholders are
1: aligned, right? Because mm-hmm. there's no
0: ambiguity with
1: the RACI matrix, so that's great. Absolutely, and it's not a once and done exercise, too. We've that's probably our third iteration. You know, just things you, you realize you missed something the first time around, but that's okay. Continuous improvement. Now let's talk about the timeline of our program at our best. Uh, I joined a bank beginning of 2017, employed number one in the team, I suppose, um, and then hired a, a handful of folks after that focused on uh, traditional Lean and Six Sigma type work. Again, beginning of 2019 is when we had the idea to create an automation program. Uh, funny, so we talk about that, start building IAC in October 2019. Funny story about, the acronym IAC. Originally, we were going to call ourselves the Center for Intelligence Automation, but human resources said, well, you can't call yourselves the CIA. So we had to change it to the Intelligence Automation Center. Oh, well, you know, you can only go so far with some things, right? (laughs) Um, So we, so let me talk a bit about what getting started was like for us. Um, Again, I did not know a lot about RPA or automation, I'm more of a process guy than a technology guy. I I can learn, but I didn't know that much going into it. But I knew enough to be dangerous, I suppose. And from the research I'd done at a couple of conferences, talking to people, just researching best practices online, I learned a couple of things. It is probably more complex than you thought. And complexity brings implementation risk. And how are you going to account for that? And as a consequence, if you want to do this and do this well, you probably need to bring in an implementation partner, someone who's done this before to help you get started. And in contrasting our approach to some other companies I've seen, uh, I've talked to a lot of people at other organizations who I would say they took a slow, slow roll approach, just kind of tiptoed in, maybe have one or two people working on some automations to see what it's like. Arvest was good about, once they decided to do it, uh, we were all in. And they're willing to invest in building this team, willing to invest in finding a good partner to help us get started. But I was pretty transparent with them that we're going to have to spend some money before I can show you some money. But I think they, they had vision, which that's one thing I appreciate about the leadership team here. They had enough vision to realize this could really pay off. So they let us do that. We spent the summer of 2019 interviewing seven different potential implementation partners. It was some of the large name firms you might've heard of, but we also talked to a couple of, um, I call them niche players within the RPA space who were really just targeted on trying to help people launch automation programs. And we ended up picking uh, one of those firms to help us. They came in October, 2019, we vetted three different RPA platforms, Uh, settled on UiPath, and then started working to figure out does the structure of this team look like? How do we find these automation opportunities? Because again, none of us knew. It was new to us at our best. Um, how do you build them? Once you've identified what you wanna work on, what does the documentation look like? Governance and so forth. Uh, we, they were with us about six months. Uh, we deployed our first use case around October of 2020. Which is an interesting time to do that. If you think back, I still remember, I believe it was March 16th, 2020 was the day I was driving to Arkansas and my boss called and said, the bank closed all the offices, turn around and go back. We're working from home. That's all I know for now, right? I think we all probably went through something similar with COVID at that time. Um, But we still kept working along, trying to get this program going. But again, we had that additional challenge in there of all of a sudden everyone went remote and we didn't really have the infrastructure for it yet at the time. And it also pivoted to an extent what we worked on. Uh, our first couple of use cases were for our, um, I guess as I call it our back office deposit operations area of the bank. Uh, one there and then one in our wealth management space. But we ended up having this quick urgent need to support some pandemic-related issues. So you you all might recall uh, a government program called Paycheck Protection Loans, or PPP. And we were trying to stand up, the whole company was trying to stand up a process for that in in very short order, but we didn't have, it it was somewhat based off SBA lending, but not exactly. Uh, So we had some rails we could use, but others we didn't. So there was a team in IT working on figuring out an origination system for that. But even that, there were some what I'll call last mile process steps that we still needed help on. So we threw together some small automations that I would call really not even process automation, but task automation. Just helping to automate some of these little steps just to get this program in place. So we did several of those small automations that we didn't use very long, maybe six months while we were going through issuing Paycheck Protection Program loans, but that happened during that timeframe as well. We hired our first employees into the IAC team that spring, started trying to figure out structure and just really getting going. And, and it wasn't easy. We, uh, no one who we hired had RPA experience. So we were all learning on a job, trying to figure out how this works. Um, but we got through it and, you know, had some small successes as we got going. Um, If you look at July 2021, that's when we started to do what I call RPA plus, started to use RPA with other tools. And that's where I think you can have a a real game changer with your RPA program. Um, There's only so much you can do with Uh, RPA alone, where it's swivel chair processes, if you ever hear that term, moving data from system to system, copy paste from one electronic input to another. But if you're in the banking or mortgage space, then you know that there are so many processes that have a PDF document in there somewhere. Maybe there's a statement image. Uh, Maybe you downloaded a flood certificate during the application process and you get the PDF back from TransUnion or someone like that. Maybe you are receiving PDFs from other organizations that you work off of. OCR, optical character recognition, we, when we bolt that on with RPA, we could suddenly tackle additional types of processes where there's a PDF input. We need to read something off that document and then copy it into a system and then take some action based off that. And yeah. I would say we've used that many times since then. Ryan, yeah. your experience, do you see that a lot too? Yeah.
0: Absolutely. I think just for context in the mortgage world, where we have done a lot is, you know, like Ryan said, reviewing flood certificates that come back from the provider, right? Or uh, reviewing even various types of appraisals that come back from the lender. So these are classic cases of what Ryan calls nicely as RPA plus, where typically the input for RPA is digital data. But here you're digitizing the data that's sitting inside a PDF and then feeding that to a bot to automate transactions. So it's very powerful, and there are plenty of use cases in you know in in the processing and in the underwriting and in the communications world. You know, change circumstances, things like that. A number of use cases there that can be applied with RPA plus.
1: Let's move to beginning of 2022. That's when we had our first citizen developer class. Uh, we let's talk about why we started a citizen developer program just as in the the traditional process improvement side we had set up a green belt six green belt training program early 2017 and the rationale for that is i had this team with six and black belts which can work some projects uh, people that do process improvement full-time for a living but we can't be everywhere at once what if we taught People around the company to do some of their own process improvement teach them the principles give them some tools they can use maybe they can't tackle everything but they can be places we aren't and improve some of their own processes we had pretty good success with that we uh, have generally done one green belt class a year uh, since 2017 we've also started doing a yellow belt class which is a a bit slimmed down just to give people something more quickly. It, it Essentially, it takes out a lot of the statistics, but gives them a lot of the same lean uh, principles to at least do s- some improvements in their area. And then they can go into a green belt class if they want. Um, but we had good success with that, teaching people how to use lean and six principles to do some process improvement. What if we taught people how to do some of their own automations? Because it's it's the same concept of, our IAC team will automate as much as we can, but we can't be everywhere at all times. And we have a, th- a threshold, if you will, of what we can take on to automate. What if you have something that maybe it's not rising to our level of materiality, but for you at your desk, this is a pain point. What if we could give you some tools so you can save yourself a half hour a day, uh, for, for example? And we taught that first citizen developer class beginning of 2022 um, a, a little, um, a little tough to figure out the right level of detail to give with those folks working through the right training materials. But I think we kind of have that down to a science now. Uh, we use uh, two, uh, I guess, it's three developers now from our technology partners. Are the automation development team three developers from that team actually provide the training? So they know how to use UiPath very well themselves. They're the instructors. Uh, for our citizen developer classes and we are doing a class a month now have been for about a year as i call hearing from them we have a, a wait list of about a, a year out to get into that program so we had a lot of interest in citizen development and in a couple cases uh it can be a source of opportunities for us maybe someone who is trained in citizen development understands what automation can do but it's just beyond um their ability to, to build that. There's just too much complexity. Then they'll hand those over to us to <clears throat> complete the automation for them. Now we're getting into 2023. Um, and, and let me talk about that comment. Three Scrum teams plus a fourth for maintenance. Why a fourth for maintenance? Um I mentioned earlier, you know, I learned some things just from going to conferences when we were getting started about what is an automation program supposed to do? How do you run it well? Another thing I heard besides never automate a bad process is I heard a couple speakers make statements to the, along the lines of, if you're not careful as you're building automations with RPA and every automation you build has some small probability of breaking, or maybe it was built appropriately, but just something in the environment changed, meaning it doesn't work as it did anymore. There's always some chance some will break. So as you deploy another automation, the chance of something breaking increases that you'll have to deal with. And lo and behold, after you've reached some critical mass of automations out there, you'll, you'll next thing you know, you'll realize your development team is spending all their time fixing existing automations instead of building new ones. We ran into that ourselves. It does happen. I promise you, you will reach that point. And we had been, and we started really focusing on that, I'd say in early 2022, a year before this. And we had, uh, we would do a rotation, for instance. We would have one of the developers focus for the week on fixing bugs that came up in our automations. We were able to keep it somewhat under control. Ultimately, we conclude, though, is this probably needs a dedicated team. We had so many automations already out there at that point. It needed to be a focus area for us, and our team had grown to the size we were going to break up into multiple Scrum teams anyway. So if you're familiar with Agile Principles, We follow that methodology. Uh, We have scrum teams follow the daily stand-ups, retrospectives, and so forth. We carved out one of those teams just to focus on maintenance, to maintain all the existing automations. And I think that's worked really well for us. Uh, In the last few months, I've noticed that uh, our cycle times to tackle bugs has gotten much better. Um, And actually, this team's gotten it under control enough that they actually have time to do some new builds as well and not just the maintenance work. So that's been a success for us. Another uh, March of this year, back to that RPA plus kind of idea. <clears throat> some other tools that we have really started dabbling in pretty heavily this year are in the task mining and mapping space. So the reason why uh, I'm excited about those is that you can use these for a couple things. Task mining is really more a, I'll call it a discovery tool. You use something like that to more systematically observe work that employees are doing, assess that work in the process with some algorithms, such as how many systems are being used, how are the steps, trying to define the, the if-then-else logic to get to the answers. It'll scale it for you and score it and determine if this looks like an automatable process. Uh, So that's helpful for us because otherwise it's really word of mouth or if someone just happens to observe something, this is a more systematic way to get to automation opportunities. And then task mapping tools are, let's say you're looking at a process you've already identified as a good candidate for automation. What we would typically do historically, and we still do a lot of this as well, is we would have someone from our team sit down with you, observe your process, you, the, the other associate walks them through a few transactions, and then we map it out in Visio, loose chart, something like that. This is actually observing behind the scenes and mapping your work as you go. And it gives you a much deeper, more robust view of the process. Here's a, here's a good example of uh, one of the processes we did in our bank operations area this summer around uh, new account opening and set up on a system. Um, our task mapping tool watched 800 transactions over the course of a week for this team. If we did that the the human way, you probably would have watched five or 10 transactions and called it done. You just can't sit there and watch someone for uh, or a team for an entire week to see their work. So that's something that we're, I, I don't think we're that far on the journey yet with task mining and mapping, but I'm pretty excited about the potential so far. We're about six, seven months into it. Awesome. All right, uh, let's talk about the life cycle of an automation, just to give you an idea of the steps involved in this. And I mean idea literally, because at the very top there, that's what it starts with. Um, Someone has an idea for an automation that can come through different means. Maybe it's anecdotal conversations. We're starting to get into task mining as well. Um, Then there's an assessment. And the reason why assessment is important is just because a process is automatable, doesn't necessarily mean you should. Back to tying this in with process improvement. We do have, it doesn't happen a lot, but we do have some conversations where someone brings an automation opportunity to us. When we look into it, we really kind of challenge them back. Like, well, why are you even doing this? Do you need to? And sometimes we can just stop doing the work. But on the other hand, maybe it is a legitimate process we need to do, but perhaps the transaction volume is just so low that it's really not worth the time to build it. Because this, automations aren't free. Um, you're paying for a, a robot license to run, or part of one, uh, to run an automation. Um, there's some cost for the team to assess it, to build it, deploy it, to monitor it ongoing. So they're not free. So we do have to make sure that they're at least worth some minimally viable threshold for automation. So that, that, that AOA team does that and then qualifies it if it looks like one we should do. Analysis and solution design are your, so what's your as-is process? Think about your future state process for the solution design. One thing we do quite a bit in solution design, which we didn't do in the beginning, but we have a lot in the last year, year and a half. um, These RPA tools are originally conceived of as automation with the user interface, how the human would do the work. But very often we found we might have a an API that directly integrates into some system and we'll just use the API to go in that way. So we'll we'll tweak again, we're tweaking the process very often just to make it run better in an automated fashion. Then there's development, actually building out, you know, the traditional software coding, as you might imagine, and then testing to make sure it works. Then you go live. So that's our typical life cycle for automation.
0: So Ryan, I had a question on this, right? Uh, can you talk through how much of this is Top down versus mm-hmm. bottoms up. Um, mm-hmm. You also mentioned citizen development, right? Yeah. So yeah. you know, so does the citizen development occur after an idea has been approved, and you know, and they then go out to build, or they then first build and then show a POC mm-hmm. of how that happens, and how much of this is really top down? You know, strategically, here's what the organization wants to do from an automation perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, so let's get this done versus bottoms up. You know, opportunities that you see on the field. So if you can mm-hmm. help to talk through that.
1: I would say it's a, a bit of both. And I'll explain what I mean by that. We'll use our mortgage business as an example. Um, Matt Kendall, who was your speaker at the last one of these meetings, who's president of our mortgage company. He's a good sponsor of automation and helps to you know, remove roadblocks if we're having a challenge or can kind of push the team. Hey, let's see where we can use these tools. But I don't necessarily look to Matt to bring us the opportunities, although he has brought us a couple. Um, Where he helps is put this out there with his team, set some goals for let's see where we can use RPA, where we can leverage tools like that to make our processes better. But help us find the opportunities and really bring us those ideas usually comes from people at a more grassroots level, I would say who have some familiarity with how the tools work. And we see that in other parts of the bank too, like our loan, our small business lending area, consumer lending, deposit operations. Awesome. All right. And this is again, If I know we have some folks who are not that far on the journey yet, but there is some assessment needed to figure out whether you should even automate something with RPA or not. because another reason why you might rule one out is maybe boy this is a really messy process for this team and there's a lot of volume going through it so it's certainly an expensive process but maybe you can't automate it at least with rpa you have to have just a few uh, there there are some elements of a process that must be in place for it to be a good candidate again um I'll, i'll walk through a couple of these highly manual and repetitive we're trying to help people get rid of some of the tedious work that they do over and over again. Um, rule-based, and here's why rule-based is important. Um, RPA is an automation tool, it is not an AI tool. It cannot think or anything close to that. However, if, if you, let's say you could write it down on like a, you know, you're in Excel and like an if-then statement. It might be a complicated one, but you got to get it down to something like that, right? To where it can, some sort of a rule, to define the path to do the work. Yeah, but so we talked
0: about it because there's a okay. lot of misnomer, right? About mm-hmm. RPA, AI, machine learning. RPA is yes. not here, you know, it's, it's rules-based, it's repeatable, it's high volume, yeah. right? Yeah. It, 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 yeah.
1: <laughs> and we have some processes where let, let's say you're looking at this process, let's, mix it, let's say it has 37 steps and you can't automate the whole thing because there's this element of human judgment needed in the middle but what if you can do task automation for the work that you can automate and we see that and we've done that in a few cases as well so like let's say your anti-money laundering team um, filing currency transaction reports we've done some work around around that area um yeah. there's so there's an upfront data gathering piece where you're gathering all the data elements that you need to assess whether we need to file this currency transaction report with the regulators. There's mm-hmm. an analysis piece in the middle to make a determination whether we need to file this one or not. Then once that's been decided, then file it with the regulators. You can do the front end and the back end with automation pretty well. That middle part, so you, you where it's a, it's a critical task for a financial institution, would do we file this one or not? We're we're at a place where we still want a human to make that decision. At some point, maybe there will be tools down the road that can get closer to judgmental type work. Yeah. But now we didn't feel comfortable with that. So we we left that with you.
0: Yeah. Another thing when you mention about what is a typical good RPA use case, there's most often than not there is a blanket opinion. Hmm? You know, oh, we like to use APIs, not RPA. But you know, my point is. They're not mutually exclusive, right? Sure. There is yeah, a place yeah. for APIs and there is a place for RPA. But the first thing that you come up with is, oh no, no, You know, we only want to use APIs. So we're actually putting out a paper in the next couple of days. It'll be very interesting to hear the feedback. And mm-hmm. you know, we believe that both actually have to coexist in a, in, a mm-hmm. in an effective environment. So automation environment.
1: So question for you, Narayan. I noticed I, I talk a lot. We got about 15 minutes left, but half the slides left. Let's think about what would be most meaningful for the audience. I've got some parts coming up about different use cases we've done at the mortgage company and at the bank. Um, kind of where we get the opportunity. Yeah. Some of my lessons learned. What would you What do you think the team would like to hear here?
0: So I think definitely, you know, a walkthrough of how you conceptualized an automation initiative, right? One use case, and then walk through the life cycle of that, so they can get that framework in their heads. To talk
1: through some actual use cases yeah yeah okay um can we go forward i think three slides yeah right there yeah let, let's talk through some of these and these are in the mortgage space uh, let, let's start with this and notice how i have this broken up into two categories one-time use projects and ongoing process automations in, in my own naivete, we got started on this. I would have figured we would only be automating ongoing process work, much to my surprise. And I'd be curious if others find this and their work on the automation journey too. But a lot of what we've done has been one-time projects. So you're only using it once or for some defined period of time. But the volume of work going through that process is so significant that it's worth doing it. And these have actually been from a financial value standpoint, looking at the time saved for the people doing the work bigger than a lot of the ongoing work we do. And uh, let's talk through some of those and how they came about. Um, Data movement for servicing system replacements. Uh, Arvis just finished about a year ago, a migration from a, a very old servicing platform we'd had for a long time to a newer, more cutting edge platform a very large project. I'm sure some people here on the call have been through that. There's a lot of work going involved in that. And for the most part that project went actually very well. Um, but there we had a challenge of the antiquated system we were on. There wasn't a it wasn't an efficient way to get all of the account documents out. So um, statement copies, the original application, things of that nature. And the way that platform worked is it would bundle these into a into massive PDF files with thousands of pages. Who had that logic in me? I don't know, but kind of unworkable. Now, humans could do that and go open this PDF, which opens slowly because it has a thousand pages, and then kind of save it apart, right? Save these three pages because they're this document, then pages four through seven and so forth. But it would have taken an unfathomable number of hours to do that. It, 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 is that or keep this system live indefinitely until the runoff of the portfolio is none of those accounts are left, which should be years. Uh, we found a way to do that with automation. Um, and it was, the from a time standpoint, to do the work, the biggest one we've had so far, just because it, it, it ran for months just to churn through that because I think we had over 5 million um, account documents to break apart from these big PDFs. And then another one, um, delivering documents for our loan sales. So others might do this too. Maybe you have a, a MSR portfolio. Maybe you sell some of those loans to optimize your servicing portfolio. Um, we had a, for instance, we had a couple buyers that wanted their documents received in a certain way, needed some manipulation to make that happen. We did that with RPA pretty quickly. Um, let's talk about that third one. The reason why that one's noteworthy is that is one that came from citizen development. So we talked earlier about, uh, Ryan, you asked if that could be a source of ideas, and it is in some cases. Uh, early this year, one of our citizen developers who's trained in our mortgage business noticed a problem. And because he had been trained in citizen development, he, that popped into his head. I think I can tackle this with citizen development from being in that servicing platform conversion, nine, 99 percent of that project went great. However, for some reason it was either the be- I think it was the beginning balance for the year for all of these, uh, for for, the, for a large sub-segment of mortgages, the beginning balances were incorrect. So therefore, it messed up the 1098 forms where you report the beginning and end balance and how much your interest and in principal payments were. Um, and he this came to light, I think, about a week or two before the deadline to send these out. And he did find a way to fix that type of an error with citizen development, but... He needed scale to get that done. Uh, I forget the number. We had like 70,000 1098s that needed to be corrected and mailed out by that time in a week. So he he brought his automation to us, our COE team. We, our developers rebuilt it to run a little more efficiently. And then we threw a bunch of our licenses at it because we have a large pool of unattended robot license at it to knock it out over a weekend. But we would not have known about that very likely if we didn't have citizen developers trained in mortgage who understand automation and know where it can be used. So that's another compelling reason, I think, to have a citizen development program. Um, Let's talk about a few ongoing processes here. We do that too. They're not all one-time events. Uh, This third-party services was one of the first ones that we did. And this was kind of of an obvious one, I think. Uh, I assume a lot of people here are familiar with Some of these processes where after the loan officer takes an application then you have some tasks you got to check off the list you need to order a tax transcript for the borrower to make sure they accurately report their income order a credit report if you haven't already um order a flood certificate pull that into the system take action on that we call those third-party services it's very standard rinse repeat process easy automation yeah and
0: i was gonna say these are the most popular type of um Mm -hmm bots that our clients have implemented with us, flood, fraud, you know, title appraisal, 40406C, collateral desktop appraisal, right? Uh, Any of these. So these are super simple and rules-based. There's very little variation, right? So it's easy to automate Mm -hmm. these ones.
1: And then why don't we actually move forward? Let's go to some uh, other parts of the company. Just talk through real quickly some of these to think about. We do a lot of work in the rest of the bank as well. Um, In case we have some people on the line who who work in other parts of financial institution, just to give you some ideas. Um, Commercial lending. um, We uh, assume some people here have heard that the LIBOR, uh, a reference interest rate that's tied in with a lot of commercial mortgages is going away. And, and uh, we, so we, of course, we were a commercial lender as well. Uh, we have loans tied to LIBOR, uh, but which isn't necessarily a problem in and of itself. But the challenge is uh, two things. Is there a replacement rate referenced in the loan document? And are we sure that we have identified in our core lending system, all loans that use LIBOR? Because we knew there were some gaps in that. So the options were, have a whole bunch of human beings, pull up every commercial loan document we have, see where the LIBOR is referenced in it and whether it has a replacement rate noted, or find a way to systematically do it. We found a way to do that when with o- with RPA and OCR to look for, to basically look for LIBOR within the documentation. So that's one we did on a, again, a one-time use, but it was the entire commercial loan portfolio at Arvest. And we talked about paycheck protection program, uh, some task automation to help with that. But some ongoing automations as well uh, for our home equity line of credit product and consumer lending. We produce the disclosures that come in, that are sent out after each application and deliver those out to the applicants. Uh, in wealth management, it's in wealth, but it's really kind of a risk management process. Yeah. Uh, there are some transactions. This is it's kind of a unique security type uh, where if you sell it too far in advance of maturity, there's kind of the. The uh it, it it could look like the customer, because it has a high upfront load, it could look like a load fee. It could look like did the did the uh, investment advisor encourage the customer to sell early to then sell them another security. Maybe they didn't, maybe there's legitimate no reason to sell a security, but regulators frown on those type of transactions. We built an automation to review the transaction logs and find those and then it goes a step further and auto-generates an email to the investment advisor to ask about a specific trade. So uh, lots of interesting little use cases you can come up with with RPA. And then yeah. deposit operations, we do a lot of work there. Uh, I just put a couple, but fraud reporting to visa, decisioning and disputes, we do a lot in that space these days. Fertile yeah. ground. Yeah.
0: No, I think these are great examples. And, and I would say, don't overlook one time. You made a very valid point there, right? especially mm-hmm. in the servicing world, there are tons of reconciliation that occur even on a monthly basis, right? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that you can only automate transactions that occur on a daily basis, right? Mm-hmm. These are voluminous processes that occur at the end of the month, right? You're mm-hmm. just comparing data between MI carriers, you're comparing data between investors and what's in your servicing system. You're just, you know, you're just doing a whole lot of such reconciliations in the month end, uh, escrow, all of these. So all of these can be automated with RPA. And those are some of the use cases that we are working on right now. So that's a really good call out, Ryan. Thank you. So I think, you know, given, um, you know, we've obviously covered a lot and, you know, great, outstanding content that you put together. I was wondering, what would be the takeaways? What are some of the lessons that that you have learned in your journey of automation over the years?
1: Sure. Uh, I've got my top five list here. The things that really stand out to me uh, we learned, number one, quickly, it, it, not, not trying to disparage any automation software providers out there. But if you follow their advertising, they all say it's uh, the use words like low code or it's so easy or an automation for all employees. In our experience, that's not necessarily true, even with our developers. And our, everyone on our development team went through several months of training. Uh, before we really let them loose to go out and build some automations. And there's, they're just difficult sometimes to, to figure out how to uh, automate this process because very often we're working in various different systems and some of them interact with an automation platform differently than others. And it's, it, it is harder than advertised. It's not to say don't do it. I'm not trying to discourage you, but you're going to need some technology talent to do it and you're going to need to get proficient in it. Um, Number two was an eye opener to me as well. We have built several automations that a business partner within the organization came to us and pleaded, please automate this process for us. We don't want to do this tedious work anymore. It's frustrating. Please automate this process for us. We build it to their specifications. We deploy it. It's ready to go. And then we monitor it to see how much volume is going through and it's not being used. <laughs> this is change management 101 right here. It and it's, it surprises me how often this happens. This is not a one-time event I've seen. Uh, it's been several times where we build something and and they don't use it. Narayan, you see that sometimes too. It's just Yeah, absolutely. People change.
0: Yeah, which is why we always pin down to say, you know, let, let's get into a mechanism of ROI measurement on a periodic mm-hmm. basis. Because mm-hmm. if you're spending money, if you're running automation, and if you're not getting the ROI, mm. then that, that would sitting there. And it's not just, you know, it just doesn't just cannibalize what you're doing, but it mm-hmm. also jeopardizes your future initiatives because you then start to lose confidence in the whole automation
1: um, framework in itself. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, number three, this ties in with why we set up that maintenance team. Um, keeping your build, automations up and running can become a lot of work once you have a critical mass of automations yeah. deployed
0: more about- you. <laughs> you know, it's it's so critical. People think it's, you know, build it and it'll keep running. But you mm-hmm. never know. People change processes all the time. People, you know, your LOS provider will change a button somewhere. Mm-hmm. It'll break. And we have seen lenders who've used tools dictated by their corporates that went out of the market, the RPA broke. And for mm-hmm. six months, it didn't work. And they released the people who were doing the work because they've automated it and mm-hmm. because they couldn't maintain it the entire function was done for like six months. So that's a very important point when you consider automating, you know, will you be able to sustain um, a maintainable automation program after you build it? It's not just a one-time effort.
1: Absolutely. I'll close out with these last two we talked. Don't forget about those one-time use automations just because it's not ongoing. It still might be worth doing from a value standpoint. And we do track the value of every project we do, we do a six month look back. Those are often the biggest. Last but not least, Make sure you gather all those business requirements up front. And and we've learned this the hard way. I think we're better at it, but not perfect. Where you, maybe you've already developed it, you're in testing, and then the business says, Oh, we forgot to tell you about this. And I won't pin that entirely on our business partners. We need to ask the right questions up front to make sure we're really trying to extract that information. So it's it's on us to really try and get that on our team.
0: Yeah. Now, these are some great lessons, very practical. All
1: right. Area.
0: All right. So I think Robin, I think that's pretty much of, you know, um, wanted, we wanted to cover. Hopefully this helped educate the audience on how Arvest undertook an automation program, not just as a scatter shot or as a, you know, looking around for nails when you have a hammer in your hand, but it's a more holistic approach. You know, how to set up an automation team, how to set up the strategy, and then how do you then drill that down into customer journey life's, you know, value stream mapping, and then down to eventually implementing a tool and a methodology, right? So we'll obviously share this, um, you know, there's this knowledge with everyone. Um, great. I'm glad we could have so many of us join. Any questions from any audience that we could take? Robin, uh, over to you to close it out.
2: Um, yeah. The, uh, the only question that I had was, if you know, <clears throat> are there other automation solutions besides RPA that Arvest has deployed? Mm-hmm. I think you mentioned a couple early on, but I um I think most of the most of the ones we talked about at length were kind of RPA focused. So
1: we we there are others out there, and I won't presume that if anyone wants to automate, they can only use RPA and they can only use UiPath. I would mm-hmm. say that's the the main thing we're using within the company. But um there are some similar products out there. Uh we are a Salesforce organization, rolling out more use cases for that. They have a program called MuleSoft, which is kind of like an RPA platform. not really using it much yet, but I think once we roll out Salesforce further, I would not be surprised to see more happening with MuleSoft. Um, Our integrated account servicing team, which is basically loan and deposit operations to a large extent. They have another platform called Nintex, which can't do everything UiPath can do but they can do some lower-level automations with that. Um, so there are some other tools out there. And then even um, on top of RPA, we'll, we bring in some things that we can use supplemental to it. For instance, uh, this year, we've been using a task mining tool called Mimica that we use to then feed automations into UiPath.
2: Have you had any um, experience sort of automating the compliance or Q&A uh, type of um
1: T- uh, tasks and processes. QA, like uh, the testing of software? That type of QA um, or something else?
2: Well, more like sure. compliance, I think. More like compliance. Oh, oh, like, oh. You know. Like uh regulatory regulatory compliance issues, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. automating those those can be a little bit more sensitive and challenging. So I thought I'd ask mm-hmm. if you, our has had any experience? Yeah,
0: compliance us. and quality control,
1: essentially. I think it's okay. that type yeah, of QC. Sorry, QC. Yeah.
2: We, we, mm-hmm.
1: we we have done some of that. Um, yeah, we for instance one that I thought was really interesting, of uh, a, a Humda related process for the loan activity register that we have to submit to the regulators. Um, mm-hmm. that was a very clunky one for us. And Mm -hmm. because of the amount of work it took to do the stare and compare, comparing data fields between the uh, mortgage platform and what our compliance system is proposing to report to the regulators, our compliance team would only review 25% of the the loans. And so there's always some inherent risk that you might have missed some, but it's basically a large sample to see what the loan pool looks like before reporting it out. But knowing that when the regulators come in to do their review, there's a three and four chance that they're going to pick a loan we haven't seen. Uh, we worked with our uh, mortgage systems team to build a better process for that um, and got it to where they they built a report up front that does that stare and compare for you. And then uh, the compliance team, the actual analysts only review the exceptions, the ones that don't match.
0: Yeah. And that
1: went from a 25% review to 100% review. So they review the entire population and less time spent doing it. So that one was a a good win, I think, for the compliance team.
2: Hey, great. And I have one last question for you. Um, I think a lot of folks uh, get a little bit nervous um, actually trying to deploy automation. They're afraid of the failure and like maybe screwing up some of their processes. Um, What? And I know you do some testing before rollout. Um, Are there any suggestions you have on how to help our um, mortgage lenders or servicers overcome some of those fears that they're not going to break the whole system if they try it just try it you know
1: Mm -hmm. i i can certainly appreciate that uh, that that's where you can't underestimate the value of testing right Mm -hmm. the value of testing and having a, a competent development team to do the coding up front making sure you gathered all the business requirements and Mm -hmm. making sure that you have competent testers to test this before it deploys. I think part of that, the challenge we really see is missed requirements. You deployed it, Mm -hmm. and you're doing user acceptance testing, and, oh, we forgot to do this. That's what we tend to see more than, you know, this broke the whole function. But another principle maybe I'll leave you with in that regard is break. If if you're going to automate this end-to-end process, break that up into, I'll call them more bite-sized chunks. For Mm -hmm. instance, we have a process step to create your work items, to process your work items, to send your work items. So therefore, if a piece breaks, you don't break the entire process automation. So that's one thing we try to apply as well. Other organizations I've seen automate this whole process that takes seven hours to run. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, then
1: you have to start the whole thing over if it doesn't work, so do not do that.
2: That's a great point. Um, thank you. That's an excellent suggestion. Um, and I think that concludes the uh, Genius to Genius Forum. And we are very grateful, Ryan, that you agreed to come on and provide that deeper dive. We had a lot of requests at the end of the last forum for um, a more breakdown of how best accomplished what they did. And so I'm very grateful to you and to the whole entire Arvest team for sharing your knowledge with us today. Um, And thank you, Narayan, as always, for hosting this wonderful forum.